Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world, spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com, music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You're listening to Rainbow Soul from BlakeRadio.com. Well, greetings, and welcome to Topically Yours on the Blake Radio Network, Rainbow Soul. I'm your host, Deirdre Shuler, wishing my listeners a safe and healthy journey through the quagmire of the sudden events that have taken hold of the world. It seems sudden and out of nowhere, this coronavirus. America certainly has been taken unaware and unfortunately unprepared. What lies ahead, nobody knows. I would advise wearing gloves and be more careful about touching door handles and items in supermarkets, etc. without wearing gloves. If you have a mask, use it. But I think the gloves are essential. Wash your hands constantly. Rub them down with alcohol and hydrogen peroxide if you have nothing else handy. Drink plenty of water. And it also wouldn't hurt to take vitamin C, elderberry herbs, echinacea, mullein, turmeric, peppermint, 
and anti-inflammatory herbs if you are holistic conscious. Be positive and don't panic because caution is the key. Several industries have taken precautions such as schools, libraries, theaters, and restaurants and places where people gather in large numbers. In fact, I've invited the owner and director of the St. Mark's Theater 80, Mr. Lorcan Otway, to talk about what the theater community is doing to protect its staff, actors, and audience. St. Mark's Theater 80 is located at 80 St. Mark's Place in New York City. The theater itself was built in 1964 by Howard Otway and his son Lorcan, who is a former lawyer, musician, and boat builder. He is a lecturer who lectured over the years on the war in the northern counties of Ireland, and we'll ask him about that. He also has spoken about Native American rights and the history of organized crime as well as the history of Off-Broadway. Lorcan Otway has appeared on television and lent his voice and opinions to radio. So, we have lots to talk about with Mr. Otway, so let's welcome him to the show. Welcome, Lorcan Otway. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. Well, I just want to jump right into it and ask you how the uh, coronavirus has affected the theater community. Well, uh, here at Theater 80, several days ago, uh, we decided to suspend uh, productions uh, several days before the city decided it in the interest of our audience. And um, this evening, uh, by 6 o'clock, we're closing our other businesses. We have a uh, tavern, we have a uh, museum and a uh, bed and breakfast, all of which go to support the theater. Um, we are one of the last commercial off-Broadway theaters. I should explain that off-Broadway um, refers to the size, not the location of the theater. Um, 199, excuse me, uh, uh, 100 seats to 499 is off-Broadway. Smaller theaters are off-Broadway. Off so we are by nature small business in an environment that has been not terribly friendly to small business in the uh, in the first place. And so um, being closed for however long we're going to be closed is a, is a great threat to um, the survival and success of uh, small theaters in New York. Well, that was going to be my question, is that the uh, Off-Broadway and the Broadway Theater Alliance has made that decision to temporarily shut down the doors of theaters and no one knows how long that's going to be. I guess it's going to be a wait and see uh, uh, attitude, but what is going to be, who's going to be subsidizing the lost income for both actors and the theater owners? Well, we don't know at this point. I mean, we're hoping that there will be um, both uh, state and uh, city programs and, uh, you know, Call me a dreamer, but who knows, maybe even a federal program. But um, we also, uh, you know, have to find ways of um, uh, carrying forward on our own. We're quite used to that. Uh, In the past um, 10 years, the property taxes for those of us who own the buildings that our theaters are in have skyrocketed. Uh, Our taxes have gone up over 300% in 10 years. 
the uh, rent for other theaters have you know also gone up very uh, very high. And you know, New York as a as a city has to ask itself: Does it want to remain a uh, theatrical capital? And to do that, we need um, the city government and the state government to uh, uh, work on getting tax breaks for those buildings that have theaters and and really um, treasure that that industry that has made New York what it is. Their greed. That's that's pretty much the bottom line. <laughs> Well, no, it's it, it's not the bottom line. It's it's one of the it's certainly one of the uh, aspects. But there's a great difference. Don't you know? There isn't a, an institution called landlords in New York. There are landlords like myself, a dying breed that has one building, and uh, works a business in that building. And then you have the debel- the developers who get tax breaks. And of course, the more they get tax breaks, the more the burden falls on the single building landlords. And our, uh, you know, we, we're carrying the expenses of the theater, where you know the uh, those twelve people that now own the Lower East Side pay virtually no taxes, and uh, so there's a, so there are landlords and there are landlords. Well, let's say the ones that have it are making millions, where others are struggling. Exactly, and and what's happening is, of course. The more that they get tax breaks, the more we have to uh, make up the difference, the more of us go under, and more and more uh, property is removed from the tax rolls, and the burden gets you know, more and more difficult for the small business landlords. You know, both uh, pol- political parties have promised um, concern for the small business, but what they've done instead is redefine small business. Uh, we went to a meeting with uh, Gail Brewer a few years ago where she defined small business as uh, making a million dollars a year and having 100 employees. Uh, in my book, that's a mid-sized business. The fact is that we small theaters and shops and those those businesses that define neighborhoods statistically don't exist anymore. And uh, it's something that is going to change uh, the the future for not only New York but the the opportunity for those who live here. You know, the if you notice on the news very often, they talk about uh, Wall Street and how many jobs they are. What they don't talk about is the loss of ownership in property and uh, and and businesses by the middle class in this country. And that's a that's a great uh, shame. It's a it's a great taking of opportunity because the fact of the matter is. The poor don't go from being uh, poor to super rich. They struggle up into the middle class. And when you destroy the middle class, you destroy opportunities uh, for everyone who is not a a billionaire. Well, then is it the corporations that are taking, putting uh, small business out of business or 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 just the wealthy? I'm going to put on my political science hat for a, for a bit. Then we do we should talk about theater. But um, uh, Jimmy Carter, who has been a much better former president than president, was the first Democratic laissez-faireist president. And of course, Bill Clinton. You had Larry laissez-faireism on a, a, a extraordinarily dominant theme in, in the Democratic Party. And so, you, rather than having a FDR and LBJ uh, version of corporate capitalism, a kinder and gentler capitalism, we basically had the Republicans who were laissez-faireists and uh, parochial in their view of of, uh, opportunity and inclusion. And then you had the 
the Democratic Party who were laissez-fairist and uh, more uh, uh, progressive in in saying that among those billionaires, you know, we have billionaires who are are women or minorities, but it's still such a small portion of the um, the real opportunity that uh, at the end of the day it protects the old system of white males uh, and a very very small handful of them. Well, but the, the real the real issue is laissez-faireism. Okay. Um, I'm and, and, and just to clarify, that conversation for a second. You, 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 you might remember that when we went to school as young people, we were told that there would never be another depression because of our rules against monopoly. And it seems that's completely gone out the window where you have. I was about to say, a, it's a monopoly yeah. now. Exactly, exactly. Now, um, so, off of that subject for a moment, can we uh, go into your earlier years, your 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 childhood? Sure. Uh, I, I, I grew up in a theater family, uh, generationally okay. theater. So, um, you know, I've known theater my entire life. I don't remember the first time I was in a theater because I was carried into a theater when I was, uh, you know, a babe in arms and grew up backstage. And uh, back then it was a very different world for theater. My father was uh, quoted actually online. There's in famous quotes. There's a uh, quote from my father saying that there's no competition in theater. That the best thing that could happen is to have a hit open next door to you. That's changed with the uh, move from uh, commercial theater to not-for-profit. What happens now that theater, for the most part, is not supported by ticket prices is that theater companies are vying for the same money, Um, whereas when it was a commercial industry, um, we were a much more organized uh, industry because it it was uh, to everyone's advantage to have a lot of successful shows because people didn't go to the same show every night and people got into the habit of going out to theater. So I think it's been a great loss, the decline of commercial theater. In many ways, uh, commercial theater was free speech theater in, in, in America. And, and Broadway has gotten so expensive, and not, people can't go like they used to be able to go. So they are going exactly. to Broadway where they can afford it. Um, yeah, yes, indeed. So, and, and that's the great tragedy is that as, when it comes to audiences, we're a very healthy industry, but we are being – uh, strangled by insurance, by uh, mm. the uh, by property taxes, by rents, uh, by so many costs uh, that um, it, it really is, uh, you know, a matter of not even needing subsidies as much as needing uh, to get uh, some uh, breaks from things like taxation. Definitely. Now, our, our, my question again is. Or another question: Are you of Irish heritage? Because it seems that you have an interest in Northern Ireland. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, my father was conceived in in Belfast at the outset of the Anglo-Irish War. Um, his family went to Canada. He was brought into the country as a small child, and at 13 he had a disagreement with his father, and so um, he was never naturalized until he was 65. He he built Theatre 80 and wrote his books and uh, plays and, and all as, as what today uh, are referred to as uh, illegal aliens. He was without papers and, uh, until he was 65. And um, so when I was um, in the last year of the Vietnam War draft, 
my family were Quakers, and I grew up Quaker, still am Quaker. And so I was a conscientious objector. And um, when I had been so often challenged by others to uh, ask whether or not it was a matter of cowardice or, or principle, I decided to go to war with a camera rather than a gun. And I went to uh, the uh, place of my father's inception, and uh, I uh, spent the mid-'70s in, in uh, Belfast. And uh, uh, it was a uh, real political eye-opener. And uh, it was also, I have to say, it is um, a town that even at the height of the Troubles, the worst years of the Troubles, um, I absolutely fell in love with Belfast. It's, it's a wonderful town. Well, but, uh, yes, I grew up speaking speaking Irish and uh, and uh, collecting ballads. And uh, on my dad's side and on my mother's side were Romany. So um, I, I would always kid my parents that they gave me the two most economically disempowering languages on earth, <laughs> uh, Gypsy and Gaelic. <laughs> Well, tell me, has the uh, conflict between the Catholic nationalists and the Protestant loyalists uh, calmed down since the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, or what's going on now? Well, that that would take a book. Let me start by saying, as, a, <clears throat> as an Irish Protestant uh, Republican, that uh, it isn't a matter of Catholic nationalists. It's a matter of nationalists and loyalists, and uh, the the religious divide is is in many ways a myth created to hide the fact that the war was about NATO, that it was about a, uh, keeping NATO forces in an online nation. So the Good Friday Agreement um, only worked because the same year that the secret negotiations with the IRA began uh, was the year that the Soviet Union broke up and Ireland set neutrality aside, constitutional neutrality in their, in their uh, constitution to allow American uh, airplanes to land in Ireland to refuel on the way to the Gulf War. So the the uh, geopolitical environment, which in Britain's eyes necessitated creating conflict, disappeared and the, the troubles melted away. Um, now mm. we're at a point where because of um, Britain trying to drag Ireland, the north of Ireland, out of, out of uh, Europe, um, for the first time there's real possibility of reunification uh, between the uh, Republic and the uh, six occupied counties. Well, that's a good thing, right? Unification. Oh, it's a, it's a very good thing. It's it's something that I've dreamed of my entire life. And, uh, but again, this is, that's a, it's a very, um, uh, it's a long and deep conversation. So this is a very oh, surface definitely. way of looking at it. Yeah. Well, uh, you also have an interest in, in, in Native Americans. Uh, is that in reference to the protection of their rights or, or, or what? Yes, I, I, I worked in uh, uh, federal Indian law for many years. I worked with um, the, 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 the area of law that I worked in, uh, we refer to as the rights of um, uh, cultural isolate communities. Um, uh, and uh, my, my wife describes that as any semi-autonomous, more or less organized group that can't or won't pay me. So I worked for uh, state-recognized and unrecognized Indian tribes. I worked uh, with the Romani community, uh, both here and internationally, uh, the Irish traveler community as well. Well, what are your thoughts on, on black folks and reparations? Oh, uh, I, I, that's a, again, that's an extraordinarily complicated issue. Um, I think that the fact that uh, 
southern landowners were, were reparated uh, at the end of the war, um, those who produced their wealth in change should also uh, be reparated. The, the difficult and, and, uh, uh, and, and uh, intricate question is, is how to go about that. And I think that at the end of the day, um, the, uh, the fact that, for example, you have um, in the 1970s uh, uh, under Richard Nixon, the, the switch from victim perspective to perpetrator perspective in desegregation ended the civil rights movement uh, back in the up until 74. Uh, the courts looked at whether or not a school, for example, was segregated and didn't ask why and bust people to integrate those schools. Um, the Republicans pushed the idea of perpetrator perspective, where you asked, why is the school segregated? And they would then come up with excuses like, well, you know, people choose to live together in their communities um, as if people choose to live in Ocean Hill, Brownsville, because they love the community more than uh, uh, Park Avenue or Fifth. So you go to a place like um, my neighborhood and on the east side of First Avenue, you have excellent, uh, well-funded school, public schools, and on the, uh, excuse me, on the west side of uh, First Avenue, on the east side of First Avenue, you have neglected public schools without uh, resources. And that form of uh, segregation uh, uh, spread by the 70s, spread to New York. Um, and, and in fact, one of the presidential candidates uh, fought against that. And the other one is still excusing crossing the aisle to end federal uh, uh, busing, and I think it's it's a uh, it's part of what's the problem the inherited poverty because of the end of the of the civil rights movement. Well, I could go on about that, but I want to move to the next question, and and that is sure. that you're a former lawyer and lecturer. So tell me about that. Your your lecture. Oh well, it, I suppose it's a matter of always being involved in 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 these. Um, uh, isolated communities that people were interested in um, and that not a lot of other people uh, with credentials were in, uh, interested in. And so, uh, you know, I very often uh, get called on to go on uh, television and speak about organized crime as the uh, curator of my museum or uh, Romany rights or, uh, in this case, um, theaters and uh, the struggle to uh, – Keep alive when uh, we are so neglected. You know, when I visited your theater, I saw a lot of models of boats. Uh, did you construct <laughs> them as well as build real boats? Yeah, that's that's another part of my life. Um, when I met my wife, uh, Jeannie, my better three quarters, um, she was not happy with me going up north and uh, and uh, covering the war. So um, we uh, began to spend more and more time in the west of Ireland, where I apprenticed as a boat builder. And uh, when I was in law school, um, I missed the uh, the big boats, so I built little boats. And now in our tavern, we have uh, a number of models that also reflect the history of our tavern, which was a major um, uh, speakeasy during Prohibition and involved in the formation of Rum Row, which was the line of small ships in international waters that sold alcohol to the United States. But we used to um, build and race uh, a form of fishing boat in Ireland, and my wife actually was the uh, the one who uh, won most of the medals in the family for racing. She's uh, 
extraordinarily really? yeah, she she's an extraordinarily aggressive and talented captain. <laughs> wow, that's so cool. To have a woman at the helm. Now I wanna uh ask you also about the buildings that house the theater in the residential area that's also part of the building was built in 1920 by a gangster named, was it Walter Scheidt? No, no, no. Yeah, no, no. The the building was actually built in the late 1830s, early 1840s, uh, two oh. buildings. And then uh, Frank Hoffman, who was a Bavarian uh, who had fled the uh, days before World War I, um, broke through the basement to create the uh, uh, the theater by uh, illegally joining the two buildings together, and Walter Scheib was the front man. He was the restaurateur, the public face of the gang, um, as public as it was. Everything was hidden. You you literally couldn't get into the place from St. Mark's Place. You went around the corner to a uh, butcher shop, and entered through an alleyway that can't be seen from the street. And um, so the. Uh, but the building has an extraordinary history. Uh, when I was young, it's um, easy, right? Well, that was actually a little before I was young. But yes, when I was young, um, you. uh, Joan Mitchell, the painter, lived here in what had been Elaine de Kooning's uh, studio, and uh, she also had a studio at 60 up the block. Um, in 1917, when he was under order of deportation. Uh, Leon Trotsky spent some time here. Uh, he was publishing Novi Mir across the street. And uh, when I was a child, there were still people in the neighborhood who remembered uh, uh, Trotsky living uh, in the building uh, when he was being sought by the government for deportation. Uh, Frank Sinatra began his career here in 1939. Uh, so the, uh, oh, um, Dave Chappelle, the, uh, David LaChapelle, the uh, the photographer, his first studio in New York was in our building. So, I mean, the history goes, goes on and on in this, this one small spot. Uh, we were actually built on top of the uh, foundations of a Dutch hunting cabin, which you can still see in yeah. our basement, uh, which was built well, sometime in the 1630s. Excuse me? It's, it's, it's due to prohibition, prohibition. And 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 illegal gin gin um, illegal gin joint they say, but was there secret tunnels? Are and are there still secret tunnels? Yes, the there building? are actually. There there are both there are both secret tunnels and the uh, bomb triggers that booby trapped the building so that if the feds uh, broke in, the the elite of the gang would get out with the money and if the feds followed them, the building would come down on them. Uh, there's a, uh, there's evidence of all the various um, ways the building was protected and camouflaged during Prohibition. Um, when I was nine years old, my father and I, while building Theater 80, found two hidden safes from Prohibition. And my father oh. called up Scheib and said, I'm too curious to leave the safes closed, but too cautious to open them without you. So Scheib came up with a safe cracker saying that he had forgotten the combination. And uh, in the middle of the night, uh, we were down in the basement, Dad and I and uh, Scheib and the safe cracker, and we opened the safes, and there was um, $2 million in one of them in, in uh, uh, 1929 gold certificates with which Scheib Ooh. built Promenade Hotel in in, uh, in Miami Beach. Um, in the mid-'70s, my wife and I discovered that the money was the aftermath of a murder that had happened in November of 1945, and... Um, we set about solving the murder, which 
Um, I believe we have the solution and uh, wrote a film about it, which we're now going from packaging to um, production. We're we're at the uh, this, the stage of um, trying to find backers for the film. But um, I wrote the film script, and we have a uh, director and a second unit director, and uh, we have a little production company that uh, we've put together in order to um, to get the movie made. Is that the girl in the safe? Is that the girl the, in the safe, movie? yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a true story, right? About it, about the yes, it is. You're talking about now. Yes, and it's it's it's. Um, Again, the as far as gangland murder, it's it's uh, it's a very it's a unique story. Um, you know, very often uh, the on it's kind of like Irish music. When you hear Irish music at first, it sounds all alike, and then when you get deeply into it, it's all very different, and then uh, it all sounds alike again. And when it comes to gangland uh, uh, murders and such. Um, I'm kind of at the stage where now this one especially is very unique, um, though there are elements that are common to all. For example, a, a dear old friend of mine, Terry D'Alessio, who was the only woman to run a, um, a crew in the five families of Italian organized crime here. Um, Terry used to say there's no honor in organized crime. Uh, if you are killed, it will be always over money and often by your best friend. <laughs> and... Uh, so uh it, in that respect it's a very common story but the fact that it is not italian organized crime um it has uh, a lot of unique twists and turns <laughs> it was it's quite a it's quite a journey uh, researching this this case this 70 year old I'll be looking forward case. to seeing the movie uh, you, you Me too actually <laughs> <laughs> now we we've had a number of readings at the players club and uh, we are planning soon to uh, do more backers readings. So we'll have to have you come to one. Oh, yes, please invite me. Uh, your father, what prompted him to purchase the property? Was it because he was a thespian himself? Yeah, he was He was uh, a uh, playwright, and he was the script doctor for Teak Da Costa, who uh, produced The Music Man and Saratoga. And at the time, Dad was the subject of a number of local blacklists. So um, he hmm. he worked uh, uh, anonymously on films like uh, the um, uh, the Music Man for Teak, who was a constant uh, fixture in my childhood. And um, he had written a play uh, in the early '60s and was looking for a theater to produce it in. Walked into what was then a nightclub, uh, the the jazz gallery, and said to Scheib, God, I'd love to build a theater here, but no one's going to loan me the $64,000 to buy the place. And Scheib said, oh, no, I'll, I'll loan you the money, and uh, as long as you don't miss a payment, um, you know, we'll we'll be able to do this. And worse comes to worse, I'll get the building back with a uh, half-finished um, uh, uh, theater. Uh, what Dad didn't realize is that Scheib totally expected my dad to go bankrupt, and then uh, uh, he would get the building back. So he didn't know whether his boss was alive or dead. He could then open the safes and because uh, he knew there was quite a sum of money in there. And uh, he would have a handy patsy if things went crab-wise because his boss showed up. So um, as it was, he hadn't seen his boss since 1945. So that's, that's kind of the nutshell version. Of, 
Yeah, no. and Chai was a kind of a is an extraordinarily interesting character. My father would say the milk of human kindness did not run in his veins, but um, <laughs> he was. Um, I, I I liked him as a young person. He was uh, kind of a little short, um, uh, interesting guy. He was if if you think of Danny DeVito in um, in The oh. Rainmaker, that's that's how I remember Scheib. Well, was it a jazz club uh, at first, or did... oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the the speakeasy was a jazz club, and by the uh, uh, late fifties, early sixties, uh, it was the center for California jazz. Mingus and Monk would play here all the time. Uh, wow, uh, Coltrane great. recorded uh, live at the Jazz Gallery here. Ornette Coleman lived right across the street, and uh, his son Donardo and I were great playmates when uh, I was a youngster. In fact, I well, watched them rehearse the um, for the the recording of the Empty Foxhole, which won the 1964 65 Jazz uh, Award that year. You know, at the top of the show, I played my blanket and me, and that's part of uh, your good man Charlie Brown. That did that also play at Theater 80 back in the 1960s? It, it opened here. In fact, it was. Um, written and constructed on our on our uh, stage. Um, Arthur Whitelaw and Gene Person and uh, Joe Hardy wrote the music. And uh, the um, so they had the songs but no book. And they um, they cast Reva Rose and Gary Berghoff and uh, Bob Balaban, um, uh, the Hinnett brothers, Skip and Bill Hinnett, and uh, and the uh, daughter of a I believe congressman. Um, uh, Karen Johnson and they sat around on the stage and uh, read comic books and uh, chose the uh, the the ones that really spoke to them and uh, constructed from that the play that became You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. Well, we kind of remember Gary Berghoff as Radar in the film and e- also the television series Mash. Exactly, and in fact, um, what happened was. Um, uh, Otto Preminger came to see the show and uh, invited him to come to his office and and uh, and talk. And Gary was very excited about that. And uh, uh, nothing seemed to come of it. And then he got a call to audition from um, for Mash and uh, mentioned to the uh, producer that uh, he had the same name as same last name as Otto Preminger. He says, well, yes, you know, he's my brother, and he told me all about you. So uh, he, he got uh, the role in MASH from uh, uh, your good man, Charlie Brown. In fact, um, as as you probably noticed, um, we're the East Coast Grommans. We have about 30 of the leading uh, movie stars and uh, and stage stars from the 1920s through the present have signed our sidewalk. And uh, recently, Gary just signed the sidewalk, and uh, we spent a very wonderful afternoon in, in his house up up in the woods. Um, he, he's not fond of New York, so we um, or cities at all. He he's very um, he's very quiet, uh, yeah, thoughtful fellow. So we brought the stonemason up to um, up to uh, his home and uh, made the concrete up there, and he signed the uh, the uh, the plaque for the sidewalk. But um, it it was and that was uh, called was, the sidewalk of the stars. Sidewalk of the Stars, exactly. We have Joan Crawford and Myrna Loy and uh, uh, Joan Rivers and Alan Cumming, Gloria Swanson, who my, my dad was on Broadway with uh, Miss Swanson, and she called him Junior till the day she died. <laughs> and uh, 
she uh, was one of those who, with um, with uh, John Springer, the great uh, uh, press agent, uh, worked with my dad to organize the the first signings of the sidewalk. Um, uh, John was a real remarkable uh, powerhouse in uh, American theater. Um, his son Gary now is the uh, has inherited his role. And uh, Gary Springer is one of the uh, great press agents and has been a great uh, help to our theater over the years. Well, I want to ask you about uh, your relationship with Douglas Turner Ward, Robert Hooks, and Gerald Crone. Gerald Crone just passed away in February yes. from the Negro yes. Ensemble Company. Tell me about that, your relationship yes, we, with that theater. Um, well, actually, again, I, I was a bit young. My dad was a great friend of um, both uh, – uh, Doug Turner Ward and and uh, Robert Hooks uh, and when I was young, uh, my my dad had a um, policy that I would uh, start up at the bottom of each job in the theater and on um, and have to uh, make the grade through evaluations till I made manager. So um, back in the uh, 1960s, in the uh, mid to late 1960s. Uh, when Charlie Brown was here, uh, we would, after the show came down, we'd all go over to the Orchidia on uh, 9th Street and 2nd Avenue, where the um, the crew from the Negro Ensemble Company would come after shows, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, cast and crew from the Cricket and the Gate. And, um, well, I used we would, to work uh, with Fred Garrett and, and, and Carolyn Jones. Yes, indeed. And and the Orchidia was, you know, the off-Broadway um, gathering place. And my dad and, and uh, Mr. Hooks and uh, Mr. Ward became really great friends. And um, I remember as a, uh, oh, geez, I must have been 10 or 11 when I went to see um, um, the uh, Day of Absence. And it absolutely changed my appreciation of theater. Uh, it was... Uh, a, a remarkable company at a time of, of, of remarkable theater. We would go down to Washington to the Arena Theater to see Marat Saad with the Royal Shakespeare Company or the uh, Your Own Thing was playing at the Orpheum. And the uh, the 60s really reinvented theater, and the Negro Ensemble Company was a major part of that. Uh, a couple of years ago, um, I was uh, on the um, working on the culture committee of our community board and heard that their um, funding had been cut. They didn't get certain uh, um, uh, grants that they had gotten year after year after year. So uh, I called up Karen Brown, the um, director of the NEC, and I said, uh, you know, it was their 50th anniversary coming up. I said, let's uh, have you do that here. You know, she was planning to do all the classics, um, uh, the sh- soldiers play, um, the uh, the um, uh, uh, Dave absence the uh, uh, and and we uh, so we did uh, five shows had no idea how we we're going to pay for it we're still working on that but it was a spectacular uh, uh, season and it was the same year that uh, it was uh, 2016 so it was the year that. Uh, Mr. Trump was elected, so the idea of um, socially transformative theater was vital. Uh, you know, to plays that that uh, reached for truths rather than um, promoted uh, national fictions. And uh, so they are now a constituent company of Theater 80. And uh, in fact, um, Karen Brown, the director, was um, 
just about to open uh, the play um, uh, Grandma's uh, Quilt and was in previews when the um, when we found we should uh, suspend until uh, next month at least. And then, of course, the city came in several days after that and uh, ordered theaters closed. So. Well, I was we lucky are, enough to be the one to see that before the day before it closed. So yes, fortunate uh, to have seen it. It, it, it was an amazing performance. Yeah, I, I, I was sitting in the back, uh, my wife and I weeping. <laughs> so it was, it was a wonderful <laughs> performance. Oh yeah, I got upset about some parts of it, but it was a very interesting play about a woman who made a quilt of really her life. That yes. each piece was something to do with her life. That's really worth seeing. So I hope that it does uh, uh, come back to the fore after all this mess is over. And we'll know we, when we've had that them will leave, be. and we've had them leave the setup because, uh, as as we said, this we we're, we're postponing the theater uh, the uh, season rather than uh, canceling the season. And one way or another, hopefully with the support of our patrons and the city, we'll we'll. Uh, be back open and uh, have a grand uh, reopening. Please invite me. Oh, of course. We wouldn't think of not. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to be inviting the press anyway, so I, I would be there, but just let me know. And I just, we're coming to the end of our, our show, and I just wanted to know, was there anything I haven't asked you that you, you would like to mention? Well, I should mention, uh, so that my my wife will smile when she gets home, that in order to support uh, the productions here, um, as a commercial theater, uh, we don't have a not-for-profit that supports the theater. We do have a not-for-profit named after my parents, Howard and Florence Otway. When funded, we'll make grants to theater productions like uh, those of the uh, Negro Ensemble Company so that they'll be able to uh, afford rents at Theater 80. And uh, so if you'd like to help see progressive and socially transformative theater here, um, the uh, web address for that uh, is uh, you could uh, find HOFOPRO, the Howard Otway and Florence Otway Opportunity Project, through our website, which is historic80stmarks.com and saint is just the abbreviation ST so all one word historic80stmarks.com Oh, thank you very much and actually it's been a wonderful uh, time talking with you and a pleasure to have you on the show today Mr. Otway Oh, I've enjoyed it thoroughly Well, thank you very much and and I I hope everyone uh, uh, I wish everyone good health and um, you know as as we've been saying at the Players Club, uh, stay calm and uh, greet people with jazz hands. You know, fossy, fossy, fossy. Well, there you go. And as always, this is the Blake Radio Network Rainbow Soul. I'm your host Deirdre Schuler, and our guest today was producer and theater owner Lorcan Otway. And of course, I want to thank my listeners for making my topic topically yours. And we're going to end the show playing You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. You're a good
gotta get that kite to fly And I'm not the kind of guy who gives up easily Wonder why they stop to say You're a good man, Charlie Brown Never liked me anyway You're a good man, Charlie Brown Trying not to rock the boat Not to make a scene A good man, yes but I confess, I don't know what to mean. I want to rise like I should and do everything right. But I lie awake at night, never sleep, with questions in my ear. Loud and deep. I want to join the dance, take the leap. But the answer isn't clear. Then I hear You've been listening to the Blake Radio Network, Rainbow Soul.